Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shana Tova. Were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, it would be this. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter, perhaps in five years, and certainly in 50, everyone will know it. These words written by Theodore Herzl in his diary on September 3rd, 1897, upon leaving the very first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, reverberated through me as I myself flew out of Basel on the occasion of the 125th anniversary meeting earlier this month. Herzl's words took on a heightened resonance in no small part due to the fact that when I left Basel, I did so not as Herzl did on a train to Vienna, but on a plane to Israel. Let me explain. I was already halfway across the world to present at the conference. I had not one, but two family weddings in Israel, a few meetings in anticipation of Israel's 75th in the spring. My kids were all doing their thing, And Debbie, well, Debbie was happy as long as she had a ticket to the U.S. Open. (laughs) Why wouldn't I just hop on over to Israel? I buckled in. I listened to the cockpit crew speak a combination of Hebrew and German, sitting not far from elected officials of the modern state of Israel. In a mode of transportation whose very existence Herzl could not have imagined possible, one would have to have had a hardened heart not to be moved by it all. Theodore Herzl, the founder of political Zionism, the convener of what was, in Daniel Polisar's words, the most politically significant meeting of any group of Jews for 1,800 years. The man who, in less than 10 years from Dreyfus to death, set in motion a movement whose impact on the Jewish people finds it equal perhaps only in the Bible itself. I had just sat in Basel's Stott Casino where the first Zionist Congress convened in the room literally where it happened in the company of the president of the modern state of Israel. I had gone for a jog that morning and taken a selfie overlooking the Rhine River, posing as Herzl, minus the beard, add the Lululemon. Herzl was a visionary, in addition to everything he achieved in his short life. In 1902, he wrote a utopian novel, Alt Neuland, Old New Land, imagining what a Jewish state would look like 20 years henceforth. And now, it is 125 years after the Congress, 100 years after the envisioned future that Herzl wrote about, and nearly 75 years since 1948, when the dream of Israel became a reality. It was a lot to take in. 
and my mind began to wander. I was literally and figuratively 30,000 feet in the air, and my thoughts turned to the obvious question. What would Herzl say? Were he to be at my side, doing what I was doing, seeing what I was seeing, what would he think? What would his reflections be about the condition of the Jewish people, about Israel, about the diaspora, and about the relationship between the two? As had others before me, I began to imagine an imaginary journey. Herzl and me, me and Herzl, together for a day in the modern state of Israel. Now, this wasn't the trip I had planned on, shepherding the founding father of political Zionism through Israel. But as I stood there watching my new friend stand in front of the biometric scanner at Ben-Gurion Airport trying to frame his beard in the camera, I began to warm to the idea. At the very least, I thought to myself, there might be a great Rosh Hashanah sermon in all this. <laughs> Having made no plans, I had to think on my feet, where to take Herzl? It was the first thought that came to my mind, take Herzl to Herzliya, the beautiful coastal city north of Tel Aviv. That would be a great welcome. Let Herzl see not just his vision a reality, but a city bearing his name. I lent him a pair of my shorts. His legs needed a splash of sun. We strolled up and down the beach, museums, hotels, archaeological sites, restaurants, embassies, and estates. I made sure we passed the street in Herzliya named Alt-Neuland, figuring he would get a kick out of that. I could see the astonishment in Herzl's eyes as he heard modern Hebrew being spoken, as he saw Israelis enjoying the beach, bikini straps and seat seat, Israelis chasing after their children, arguing over parking spaces, doing all the things that people do. But now it was Jews doing it in a Jewish state, living freely, unselfconsciously in their sovereign land. It had the elegance and ease of a European beach, but the people, the food, the music was distinctly Middle Eastern. A new Jewish identity that had never existed before. I could see Herzl absorbing all that he was seeing. I had read by Herzl, his speeches, his short stories, even his diaries. Herzl was a prophet of Jewish pride. Zionism was, at its core, the path by which the Jewish people could be purged of a Jewish ghetto mentality and rehabilitate themselves to stand tall, free of the self-abnegation of thousands of years of exile. And here it was in plain sight. Jews just being Jews, or more precisely, being people. It might have been the hot Israeli sun, but looking back, I'd like to think it was a tear that I saw running down Herzl's cheek. This is what it looks like when Jews have sovereignty, when they are the subject of their own sentence and not the object of someone else's. Herzl's dream, alive and well. As we strolled to the edge of town, my new friend pointed to some buildings out in the distance. What is that? Oh, that, I replied, that's a high-tech industrial park. Herzl was big into science and futurism. I said to him, you imagined a country with cars, telephones, telegraphs, electricity, even elevated trains. Herzl calls, we call that over there, Silicon Valley. 
microchips, pharmaceuticals, AI, desalination technology, and a whole lot more. Herschel, I said, as we looked out at the Mediterranean, you imagined the day when oil would be found here. Well, it took a lot longer than we would have liked, and God has a wicked sense of humor. But over there, I said, pointing off the coastline, there's enough natural gas, get this, that Israel exports it. And Israel exports a whole lot more than that. Art, music, literature, cooking, culture, shtisel, galgado. <laughs> Herzl, you imagined an Israel with a peace palace, ready to distribute humanitarian relief whenever fire, famine, epidemic struck, a light unto nations with commitments to all of humanity. Herzl, Israel is that light to the world in ways that you never imagined. I was having fun, hitting my stride. I mean, who doesn't like to play tour guide? So Herzl's next question caught me a bit off guard. Elliot, the year before I died, I asked that I be buried next to my father in Vienna until that time that I could be buried in the Jewish state. Elliot, what happened? Where am I buried? Our next stop I knew was going to be Har Herzl, Mount Herzl, the place where in 1949, just after the state of Israel was established, Herzl's remains were reinterred. Whatever Herzl felt about seeing his final resting place, he never shared with me. But I watched him as his attention turned to take in the rest of Har Herzl, the military cemetery for Israel's fallen soldiers. I knew to choose my next words carefully. We were standing on sacred ground in more ways than one. Herzl, you dreamt of a Jewish state. And the fact that we are standing here is but one of innumerable indicators that your dreams fulfilled. But your dream was also a bit naive. In your fin de siècle liberal faith, you believe that a Jewish presence here would be welcomed with open arms, that we would dwell amongst our Arab brothers in peace. You were so convinced of it that you thought that the Jewish state would need no army. But you need to know that this state was not given to Israel on a silver platter. I pointed to the headstones, many clustered by Israel's wars, 1948, 56, 67, 73, the first Lebanon war, the second Lebanon war, these souls, these are, they are the silver platter upon which the Jewish state was given. Israel is a strong state, I continued, and exciting as it is to live in an era where Israel signs peace treaties with one Gulf state after another, Israel is still not at peace. Israel exists in a hostile environment, surrounded by enemies with a stated intent and military means to do it harm. It is because Israel has rejected the moral purity of exiled victimhood that Israel faces a choice of how to imperfectly defend itself, a choice Israel makes every day and would make any day. Herzl, you imagined a place in Israel of tolerance and non-discrimination, and there was no way that you could have imagined the rise of a Palestinian consciousness that rejected Jewish immigration. Sadly, Israel has yet to find peace with Palestinians living alongside and within its borders. Today, your dream of an Israel that is both Jewish and democratic 
a place where, in your words, different nationalities are accorded honorable protection and equality before the law is a fairy tale. And while there is no shortage of blame to go around, the political discourse in Israel is getting more extreme, more toxic, and more intractable. I get it. I know. I live in the Middle The Upper East Side is not the Middle East, and America is hardly the model of civil discourse. And I shouldn't tell Israel what to do for my comfy armchair. But I know what I know, be it America, Israel, or anywhere. There is something deeply troubling about the unholy mixture of nationalism and religious zealotry. With yet another Israeli election this fall, I am worried, deeply worried. I am sounding the alarm about what the results may bode for Israel's diverse population, Israel and Jews around the globe, and Israel and the world at large. I kept talking, but I could tell that Herzl's mind was elsewhere. It was not the first time the attention of my audience had wandered. <laughs> Herzl was staring at a building on a nearby mountain, really a complex of buildings. What is that? My companion asked for the second time that morning. I knew what he was looking at, Yad Vashem the state's official Holocaust Memorial Museum. How was I going to explain this one? Maybe he had noticed that his youngest daughter, Trudy, wasn't buried at Har Herzl. Was I going to be the one to tell him that she was one of the six million, that she was murdered at the Theresienstadt concentration camp? I took a deep breath. Herzl, the pamphlet you wrote in 1896 outlining your vision for a Jewish state was called Der Judenstadt, an attempt at a modern solution at the Jewish question. Whether it was a populist demagoguery of the Dreyfus trial, the coarse thuggery you experienced outside a German pub, or the genteel anti-Semitism of your college fraternity, you understood that Jew hatred was endemic to the soul of Europe. You knew the failed project of emancipation. You believe that the Jewish question, the question how Jews could be both Jews and citizens of the modern world, could only be solved by way of Jewish self-determination. You feared the dark possibility of Jews wearing a yellow badge. Herzl, you have no idea how dark the night would become, that a genocidal regime would arise whose answer to the Jewish question would be the final solution. To be a Jew today is to live in the shadow of a throbbing and soul-crushing, if only, if only, Herzl, your dream had become a reality in 1932 and not 1948. If only that were the case, then millions of our brothers and sisters and their descendants would be alive today. We sat there in silence, looking at Yad Vashem, a few minutes that felt like an eternity, a silence broken by two short words. And now? And now, Elliot? Has the world learned its lesson? Did the horror of the Holocaust excise the cancer of anti-Semitism? We can't bring back the six million, but has the fact of Israel's existence resolved the Jewish question as I had hoped? I felt myself fumbling. I needed to compose my thoughts. Herzl, 
complicated as the roots of anti-Semitism may be, on a certain level, it's no different than any other irrational hatred. Haters are going to hate. People still hate Jews for being Jews, and here in Israel, but here in Israel, where nearly half the Jewish people live, Israelis can handle themselves. They can address threats from abroad. They can take out threats before they become threats. And when someone does do harm to Israelis, I said, thinking about Munich some 50 years ago, Israel makes sure that the world knows that it takes care of its own. It's not a pleasant way to look at it, but it's also not inaccurate to say that Israel is the most formidable response to anti-Semitism for nearly half of world Jewry, exactly as you imagined. But that's only half the story, I continued. We were now on Israel's light rail going from Yad Vashem to the old city. For the other half of the Jewish world, the half who don't live in Israel, anti-Semitism remains a lived reality about which Israel can and does do very little. There may have been a time when the fact of a sovereign Jewish state served as a shot in the arm for diaspora Jewry, a proud display of Jewish self-determination, important everywhere, but especially in far-flung communities where Jews are a minority. And Israel remains a safe haven for Jews in need of refuge. These days, of course, Jews from Ukraine and Russia. But to the Jews of Pittsburgh and Poway, Colleyville and Charlottesville, Brooklyn and Paris, to the American Jews of the next generation, Israel is not and is not perceived to be a defense against anti-Semitism. The mere fact of Israel's existence neither makes my children any safer nor feel any safer. For a Jewish student on campus, for a Jew aligned with progressive causes, Israel is not only not an antidote for anti-Semitism, but in the eyes of the anti-Semite, yet another reason to justify it. We had arrived at the old city, sitting in the courtyard facing the Kotel. I had been doing most, if not all, of the talking, but it was in Herzl's next question that I realized that it was Herzl, not I, who was in control of the conversation. So why? Elliot, why are you living there, but not here? Now this question cut to the bone. I had just made the argument of the challenges of diaspora Jewish life. I had just shown him that Israel is a living, breathing argument for Jewish self-determination. I'm an adult. I have agency. I know how to buy a plane ticket. Why had I, why have I sidestepped the call of Jewish history. Honesty is always the best policy. So I decided to lead with the truth. Truth be told, I began, I struggle. Debbie and I, we struggle. We thought of moving to Israel before we got married. We thought of moving when we did get married. And we still think about it. This story is not yet done. We have family there. Our children go back and forth, and they know that nothing would make us more proud than if one day they made Aliyah. To be a Jew is to live with certain tensions between our universal and particular commitments between tradition and modernity, and given the lived reality of a Jewish state where a Jew should live. 
being Jewish is not so much about resolving these tensions, but about naming them honesty, honestly and living them authentically in our families and in our community. Our synagogue puts Israel education, Israel engagement and travel, Hebrew language at the forefront of our mission, if for no other reason than I cannot imagine a contemporary Jewish expression without Israel as part of it. I know the privilege of my existence. I know I don't need Israel as a refuge, nor do I live with fear, real fear, for my Jewish self, a statement as extraordinary as it is unprecedented in Jewish history. But some days, Herzl, I just cannot believe that I have not made the willed choice to live in the reality of Israel. And yet, I continued, as aware as I am of the claim Israel makes on my being, I am doubly aware that Israel is not my Judaism and Zionism is not my religion. Judaism is my religion. Israel is part of my identity, not a substitute for it. And somewhere along the way, I discovered that I'm more comfortable living my Jewish life in America than in Israel, a Judaism that is free of the coercive powers of the chief rabbinate, a Judaism that seeks to celebrate, not squash innovation, creativity, and inclusion, a Judaism in which all Jews, men, women, straight, gay, stand equally before God and Jewish law. I motioned to the Kotel, to the Wailing Wall, at the segregated men and women, the Haredi men in black hats, the modesty police scolding women to cover up their bare shoulders. Just this summer, I told Herzl, pointing to an area off to the side, a young man celebrated his bar mitzvah at that small courtyard the section where men and women can pray side by side. And even there, they were surrounded by heckling Haredi Jews, calling them names and ripping up their prayer books. It wasn't me. It was the prime minister of Israel who noted the bitter irony that Israel is the only Western country in which Jews don't have freedom of worship. Best as I can tell, Herzl, the impetus for your vision of a Jewish state was to address anti-Semitism and infuse the Jewish people with pride. I am and will always support Israel, especially those whose vision of a Jewish life reflects my Jewish values. And I will always work and worry for the safety of our people and against those who would do us harm. There will be a day, there will be a day when the Cosgroves establish a home in Israel and spend at least part of the year there. But with the limited number of years we are allotted in this life, I would rather spend my waking hours living a proud and passion-filled Jewish life and inspiring my community to do the same. Why do I live there and not here? Because it is there, not here, that I can build a Jewish future for half of our people. The day was late and the sun was setting. Honored as I was to find the day to spend time with Israel's founding ideologue, I sensed we were about to part ways, not to mention the fact that his unplanned visit had cut into the time I had blocked off to write my Rosh Hashanah sermon. But as I motioned that it was time to go, Herzl took me by the hand and this is what he said. Elliot, 
125 years ago, I convened a Congress that gave rise to a Jewish state. Like Moses transported through time to the study house of Rabbi Akiva, you've given me a chance to see the seeds of my vision, different as they may be from the current reality, have come to fruition. But my dream was a dream of a European Jew in 1897, a time and place as different to yours as night is today. Elliot, what's your dream for the Jewish people? My moonshot was aimed 50 years out. Where do you want the Jewish people to be in 50 years? Because Zionism is not a destination. It's an aspiration, an aspiration for Jews to live freely and fully and safely as Jews an aspiration for Jews to be anchored in their attachment to Israel, but never confuse that attachment with Judaism itself, an aspiration that wherever Jews may live, Israel, America, or around the globe, we are a people, one people, an aspiration that our commitment to our land and people goes hand in hand with our commitments to all of humanity. Elliot, aspirations are aspirational. They take effort, they require stamina, and they demand, demand the requisite resilience to weather frustration and setback. Urge your community not to give up on Israel, that no different than one does not become any less a patriot by dint of one's critique of country, so too one does not become any less a Zionist for objecting to Israel's shortcomings. Remind your community where America was 75 years into their nationhood in 1851 and what America still had to endure and overcome. Israel has come a long way, but we only will get there. We only will go the full way if our most committed urge us, nudge us, critique us, and most of all, support us in our path forward. If, as you say, Elliot, Israel makes a claim on your identity, then not only do you have a right but you have a responsibility to remain a vested stakeholder in Israel's journey. I think, though I can't be sure, Herzl smiled for the first time that day. And this is what he said. Elliot, you seem to know me all too well. Next summer, you might consider reading a good detective novel rather than my diaries. You know how, for me, an assimilated European Jew, the path back to Judaism was by way of a Jewish state, a dream of a Judaism proud and empowered of Jews at home in their skin and tradition, a Judaism freely expressed. Our dreams, Elliot, are one and the same. Of course I want you to keep Israel in your heart, to live here if you can. We'll leave the light on for you. But your leadership legacy, Elliot, your legacy will be measured according to the degree to which your Jews are at home, not in Israel, but in Judaism. Teach them, Elliot. Give them the tools. Empower them to keep Jewish homes, to live according to Jewish time and tradition. Give them a place to start, a pamphlet on their seats, a program for starters to revitalize Shabbat, a spiritual placeholder in their week. Inspire them to live passion-filled Jewish lives, in the synagogue, at their Shabbat tables, on campus, wherever they go in their hearts and in the fullness of their being. My dream, Elliot, is your dream. And your dream is a dream of every Jewish soul. And what was true for my dream is true for yours and true for all. If you will it, it is no dream. And if you do not, it will remain a fairy tale.
And just like that, my friend took his leave. Today is Rosh Hashanah, a day given over to dreams as Jews, as a Jewish community, and as a Jewish people. Let's dream big in the year and the years ahead. Most of all, let's make those dreams a reality. Most of all, Shana Tova to each and every one of you. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.